Back in the 70s, I got certified as a scuba instructor. It was a grueling process with a high dropout rate, but I'm really glad I did it. Not only did we have to demonstrate that we could perform the required skills, we also had to demonstrate the ability to teach them to others, often under less than desirable conditions. One of the skills we had to demonstrate was something called a free ascent. Basically, it means dealing with a situation where you're down deep and you suddenly discover that you have no air, either because you're stupid or because your regulator malfunctioned or any of a number of other possibilities, whatever the case. Anyway, you have to go to the surface now on a single breath of air. To demonstrate this particular skill, they took us to a nearby Navy base where they have a submarine escape tower. It's basically a very big cylindrical water tank about 100 feet tall. At ground level, there's a door that lets you into a room that has benches on both sides with regulators hanging on the wall on very long hoses, like 20 or 30 feet. There's a second door on the other side of the room that allows entry into the big tank. It, of course, is closed. So we went into the room wearing nothing but a swimsuit, a mask and snorkel, and fins. We were instructed to sit on the benches and put one of the regulators into our mouths. Then they sealed the outer door and slowly flooded the chamber. When it was completely full, the master diver who was in there with us went over and opened the inner door that led into the chamber. There were underwater speakers in the room where we were sitting so that they could talk to us. They explained that we would be taken into the tower one by one where we would do a free ascent to the surface of the tank. When my turn came, I swam into the tank with the regulator in my mouth, dragging the hose. I stood on the bottom and looked up to the surface. Way up there, I could see a circle of sunlight with a tiny little diver floating on the top of the water. And then a voice came over the speakers. Diver ready? I gave the voice a thumbs up. Then I heard, one, two, three, diver, blow and go. At that point, I blew the regulator out of my mouth as I was instructed, and I started swimming for all I was worth for the surface. Well, I kicked furiously for about 15 seconds before I finally looked down to check on my progress. Now, remember, I don't have any air with me. It's just what I have in my lungs from that last inhale before I blew out the regulator. Well, when I looked down, I saw that I was only about 10 feet off the bottom. I had barely moved. And then I heard the snarling voice again. Diver, kick those legs. So I did. I kicked like a madman. And really, really slowly, I started to rise. By now, I'm feeling a mild sense of panic because all I can think of is the fact that I'm not going to make it to the surface before I run out of air. But then I noticed that I was rising a little faster. I also began to feel pressure in my lungs. So I started to dribble a little bit of air out of my nose to equalize the pressure. By the time I was halfway up the tank, still at about 50 feet, I was really moving. Remember, this is Boyle's Law in action. Remember Boyle's Law from the last episode? The outside pressure was dropping, so the air pressure inside my lungs was going up as the air expanded. So to slow myself down, I went into the free ascent position, which is to basically spread eagle yourself to create more surface area and water resistance. You don't want to rise too fast for all the reasons I talked about in the last episode. But the air in my lungs was expanding so fast that I felt like I couldn't get rid of it fast enough. I was fully flared, trying to slow my ascent, and the air was coming out of my mouth and nose in torrents. I couldn't squeeze it out fast enough. It was amazing. That fear I had earlier about not having enough air to make it to the surface was replaced by the fear that I wouldn't be able to get rid of it. But I did. It was incredible. 
We ended up doing three free ascents that day because it was so much fun and it was an important lesson. It's one of those skills you hope you never, ever have to use, but it sure is good to know that you've got it. So let's talk about commercial diving. In my novel, Inca Gold, Spanish Blood, the main characters do quite a bit of light commercial diving as they perform the salvage work that's central to the story. But they're working in relatively shallow water and they're on scuba for the most part. The kind of commercial diving that I'm talking about here is a whole different ball game. These are divers who work at extreme depths, often for extended periods of time, performing really serious work. Welding, putting together complex assemblies like the submerged parts of drilling platforms, doing repairs on dams or the bottoms of ships, and so on. It's really complex, dangerous work that requires a high level of skill and an awful lot of special training. It's a revered trade. Now, because these divers often work at extreme depth, it's not uncommon for them to operate hundreds of feet below the surface, down to, in some cases, about a thousand feet. They have to deal with all the challenges that face sport divers, but at a whole different level. And they have challenges that they face every time they go in the water that sport divers aren't even aware of. First of all, this isn't pleasure diving. It's work, and it's hard work at that. I'd sometimes tell people who were looking at commercial diving as romantic as a job where you first have to work very hard to complete a complex, difficult task with the added disadvantage of being underwater when something goes wrong. So commercial divers, first of all, rarely swim. They're dropped to the bottom while either standing on a platform that's suspended by a crane or they're in a chamber that's lowered to the bottom. Once they get there, they walk to the work site wearing heavy shoes that keep them upright on the bottom. They also don't have a tank on their back. Their air is delivered through an umbilicus to their helmet. Oh, did I forget about the helmet? Yeah, they wear a helmet or a band mask that completely covers their face so that they can talk to the surface while they're working. The only downside is that if your nose starts to itch, you're in trouble. On scuba, I can take my mask off and scratch to my heart's content. Don't try that with a helmet, especially at those depths. Luckily, most of the modern helmets have built-in devices that allow you to reach up and squeeze your nose to equalize pressure in your ears, and you can scratch with it as well. Anyway, the umbilicus either connects them to the boat above if they're in relatively shallow water, or to the chamber that they're working from that's suspended near the work site. So let's talk about environment for a moment. Let's assume that these divers are working at a few hundred feet of depth. Based on what you learned in the first episode of this series, you know that because of the higher pressure, their tissues get saturated with dissolved nitrogen. And at those kinds of depths, it happens fast, like in minutes. In the diving world, it's called supersaturation, the state where the liquids in the tissues can't accommodate any more dissolved gas. And we haven't even mentioned nitrogen narcosis here. Well, what this all means is that they're definitely going to have to go through decompression when they finally surface. It also means that since they supersaturated those depths, they can stay down there for as long as they want, within reason, as long as they have air to breathe. But there are other factors at work here that we have to take into consideration. In the last episode, we talked about some of the physiological issues that sport divers should be aware of to stay safe. Well, they're even more serious for commercial divers. For example, we talked about oxygen toxicity and nitrogen narcosis. Remember, at depth, the partial pressures of oxygen and nitrogen in air are much higher, which means that you can get drunk from the nitrogen and convulsions from too much oxygen. So what do we do? Well, we mix our own breathing gas. Instead of breathing air, 
Commercial divers who operate at depth breathe a specially formulated mixture that's carefully concocted on the surface by a computer-controlled machine to ensure that the oxygen never reaches the point where it becomes toxic because of its partial pressure. And the nitrogen? Well, they just remove it completely. Instead of breathing a mixture of oxygen and nitrogen, divers breathe a mix of oxygen and helium, a breathing gas called heliox. Helium is an inert, noble gas, which means that it has no physiological effect whatsoever on the diver other than to keep the oxygen mix at appropriate levels. But the helium does have other effects that have to be managed. First, sorry, another little chemistry lesson here, helium is called a monatomic element. Unlike other elements, the noble gases, one of which is helium along with argon, xenon, neon, krypton, and radon, will not form compounds with other elements. That's why they're called noble gases, because they're too snooty to mingle with the common elements. One of the characteristics of these monatomic elements is that they have very low heat capacity. Another is that the density of these gases is extremely low. The results are kind of interesting. Because these gases have very low heat capacity, a diver breathing a heliox mixture loses body heat very, very quickly, which can lead to hypothermia. So one of the hoses in the umbilicus delivers hot water from the surface to the diver's hot water suit, and the hot water circulates through the suit, keeping the diver warm. The heliox is also kept warm. The other problem is that when a diver talks while breathing heliox, the low-density gas causes their vocal cords to vibrate much faster than they normally would, and they sound like Mickey Mouse to anyone on the other end of the talk circuit. Most of you have done this at one time or another, inhaled the helium in a balloon. Well, imagine trying to have a conversation with someone like that. Well, as a result, diver communications have a synthesizer built into them that fixes the diver's voice digitally so that they sound more or less normal while talking to the team on the surface. A little more complicated than scuba, wouldn't you say? So you're wearing a helmet, you're tethered to a hose array that brings warm breathing gas, hot water, and communications to you, and your tissues are supersaturated with breathing gas. What could possibly go wrong? Now let's think about the actual logistics of commercial diving. When the dive begins, the divers are sealed into a diving bell, a chamber that's connected to a crane that lowers it to the bottom. The chamber is going to be pressurized to the ambient pressure of the depth at which the divers will be working. That way, when they open the bottom of the chamber so that they can go outside to work, the pressure inside is the same as the pressure outside. They're already in full gear, and their helmets are connected to umbilical hoses that feed from inside the chamber. And once they get to the bottom, they open the hatch, and they go outside after making sure that everything's working properly. They quickly supersaturate, as you can imagine, of course, because of the pressure. Once the day's work is done, they get back into the chamber, which is then hoisted back to the surface. But now we have a problem. The divers inside are supersaturated, which means that the pressure in the chamber has to be maintained at the pressure that they were working at. That keeps them from getting decompression sickness. But the chamber they're in is small, and controlled decompression from a state of supersaturation on average takes about a day per 100 feet of seawater, plus a day. So a 600-foot dive would take eight days to fully decompress from. No way they're going to stay in that little tiny chamber for eight days. There's no bathroom. So what are they going to do? Well, it depends. 
If the job is a once-and-done activity, the chamber is hoisted onto the deck and attached to a larger chamber that's pressurized to the same pressure as the smaller chamber, the working depth, sometimes called the storage pressure. In it, there are beds, bathrooms, a kitchen, and the ability for personnel to pass things back and forth through pressurized airlocks. The chamber is slowly decompressed to the surface pressure, at which point the divers can exit. But what if the job requires multiple days of work? In that case, they're often kept stored at the ambient pressure of the depth where they're working. They simply don't decompress until the job is done. They do their work on the bottom, get into the submerged chamber, seal it, and get hoisted back to the surface and attached to the larger chamber where they sleep and eat. The next day, they re-enter the working chamber, seal it, head back to the bottom where they work out of the bell all day. This is sometimes called bell bouncing because they bounce back and forth from the bell to the surface without ever decompressing. They just stay saturated until the project is complete. But what about the long-term effects of working at those kinds of pressures? This is one of the reasons I never did this for a living. There's evidence that it can lead to problems, some of them serious. One of them is called high-pressure nervous syndrome. It's not well understood, but symptoms include trembling, uncontrollable muscle twitches, nausea, and convulsions. It usually happens with mixed gas diving. Another long-term effect is called dysbaric osteonecrosis, sometimes called aseptic bone necrosis. Like high-pressure nervous syndrome, it's not well understood, but some researchers believe that long-term exposure to high pressure can lead to permanent damage to the growing surfaces of the long bones in the body, like the humerus and the femur and so on. Ultimately, these bones can become brittle, the effects of which can be crippling, leading to joint replacement. Commercial diving is very specialized work and requires a tremendous amount of training that goes way beyond sport diving. And while there are clearly both short and long-term hazards involved with the trade, their impact can be reduced by adhering to proper decompression protocols, and even the long-term effects can largely be eliminated. So that's it for commercial diving. It's one of the most fascinating trades I know. It's growing, and demand for people in the field is high. I think you can see why it fascinates me as much as it does. For the Natural Curiosity Project, I'm Steve Shepard. Thanks for diving into this topic with me. Did I actually say that? Maybe I've been breathing too much nitrogen. Who knows? Hey, thanks for dropping by. We're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did... I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode.